Good morning. Let's try one more time. Good morning. Uh, good to be with you guys. When I was in college a long time ago, I was uh, playing on a volleyball team, and I and luckily we had a we had a 15 passenger van that was kind of our volleyball van bus, and so we traveled around in Saskatchewan, played different colleges, uh, and I remember talking to our coach, who was also employed at the school I was at, and I said, uh, "Have you ever considered putting?" Like our logo, our school logo on the van. I was like, it's just a white van. I, I, I've seen the other, you know, colleges, and they have like their team colors, their team logos, and there's like team pride, and it's like ours is just white. I think we should put our logo on. He said, I don't think that's a good idea. Is what he said. I was like, okay, and I just kind of left it. And uh, a couple months later, we were in a volleyball tournament uh, in Regina, I believe it was. And uh, we had won the tournament, and I was a freshman at this time, and, and so uh, uh, some of the returnee guys said, uh, to the traffic circle. I said, what does that mean? Uh, and they, they said, this is what we do. When, we, when there's a big win, we go to the traffic circle. I was like, I don't know what that means. And so we drove the 15-passenger van to the traffic circle. And with the windows rolled down and the, you know, 11 o'clock at night, pitch dark outside, Flashing lights, circles around the traffic circle, and, uh, and, and our coach, uh, depending on how well we did, would determine the amount of, of laps we did around the traffic circle. And so we go around, we count one, two, and the you know, windows are down, three, four, and we kept doing this, and we're yelling, and flashing lights, and we, I think we got up to 23, and the guys are like, that's the most laps we've ever done. And in that moment, I was like... That is why they don't put the logo of the school on the van. That's why. I, it's the same reason I don't put a Jesus fish on my own vehicle. I, I actually put Summit stickers on my vehicle. Uh, Summit Church stickers. My name's Drew when I get pulled over. I, uh, but we, uh, we understand this, right? And it, and the whole premise of this series is basically this, that God's, God's got a marketing problem. God's got a marketing problem. And at this point, I, in my notes, I had a list of, you know, some famous Christian leaders that I was going to read off to you about, you know, guys that have basically failed to uphold the image that they were presenting to the rest of the world. Uh, but I don't need to do that because you know those stories. You know those names. You know the history of the church. And people that claim to follow Jesus, and yet something shows up in their life and it becomes clear that they're not, that there's a gap. And you know those names. You know Christians in your life who have claimed to follow Jesus and they've hurt you. You know, I've been a pastor for a long enough time, I've, I've heard the phrase over and over again that, you know, the church hurt me. And what people mean when they say the church hurt me is basically... A person hurt me. A group of people hurt me. A group of people that claim to represent Jesus, that claim to be Christian, and I was hurt and I was wounded. This is the marketing problem I think that God has. His brand suffers, often at the hands of other people, and if we're honest, at the, your hands and my hands. And that's why I'm doing this series, 
It's for those who profess to be a Christian, uh, and it's also for anyone who's ever been hurt by someone who professes to be a Christian. I want to give a quick disclaimer. Jumping ahead here. C.S. Lewis said, when a man who accepts the Christian doctrine lives un- unworthy of it, it is much clearer to say he's a bad Christian than to say he is not a Christian. So quick disclaimer, I'm a hypocrite. I can be arrogant and I can be selfish. I've been known to stretch or massage the truth. You know, my kids sometimes tell me after the stories, Dad, the story didn't quite happen like that. I said, but the story worked so much better in my sermon when I added that little extra. I'm sometimes inconsiderate and insecure. My ego often rages out of control and I battle pride. I'm competitive to a fault and I can hurt the people that I love most because of my competitive nature. I get angry, I get petty, I get ill-tempered, I can be sarcastic, and yes, I'm a Christian. I had a number of people comment when we kind of released the title of the series, When Bad Christians Happen to Good People. I had so many people, I was like, what is that even about? Like, that concerns me. And so let me just break down the title of this series really quickly. And and today's a bit of a foundation, and then we're going to dive into it over the next few weeks. So the second adjective and noun, good people. So good, when I looked up dictionary.com, good is morally excellent, righteous, pious, I think that's supposed to say virtuous, not virus. I wish I could blame somebody else, but I make my own slides, so I can't. Satisfactory in quality, quantity, or degree, or high quality excellence. That's good. Definition of good. People, persons, whether men, women, or children, human beings as distinguished from animals or other beings. And dictionary.com actually gets that right. The Bible tells us that there's a distinguishable difference between humanity and the rest of creation. And I, and I preach about this a lot, but in, in Genesis 1.27, God says he created man in his image. And the Greek word that gets used for that is icon. Everybody say icon. He created man to be his icons, to be his representatives, so that when the rest of creation looks at a human being, they actually see an icon, a picture of what God is like. That's what we learn in Genesis 1.27, to be a person, to be a human, is actually to be an icon in some way of who God is. But we know the biblical story, and we know, the human, and we know human history, and is that we have misrepresented God over and over and over again. The Bible tells us the story of how we've become cracked icons. And so are human beings good or bad? Well, it depends what we mean by that. You know, human beings, are they morally excellent? No. We've seen over and over again that human beings are self-centered, they're selfish, they're prideful, that they look out for number one when push comes to shove, and that we have a capacity to hurt people around us. We have a capacity to disobey God and, and move away from the direction and will that he would have for our lives. But if we look at the third definition of good, of high quality, of excellence, that people have intrinsic value. And so in that way, we were all created good. In that way, we were all created to be an image bearer of God. We have value. We have beauty. 
We have purpose. We were created for significance. But yet, we know that we're not always good. We don't always act good. We don't always reflect the image of God perfectly. We have inherent value. Every person is created in the image of God. And so the reality is, and I'm, I'm going to say this as simply as I can, that there are people that do not profess to, be, profess to be Christian that represent Jesus better than those that do. I know that's, you know, maybe you're like, did he just say that? It's true. It's true. There's people that represent some of the good qualities of who Jesus was, of who God is, and they don't even profess to be Christian. You know, Matthew 25 is a haunting passage, and I won't read it, but if you read it, you'll see that uh, Jesus says to the righteous in the passage, I was hungry, and you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink, I needed clothing, and you clothed me, I was a stranger, and you invited me in, I was a prisoner, and you visited me in prison, and then the people were surprised, and they said, when, when did we ever do that? I don't remember do that. And then Jesus said, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. And then there's this group of people who he refers to as the wolf, the first group of the sheep, those who thought they were righteous, and he said, you know what, you didn't feed me, you didn't give me a drink, you didn't invite me in, you didn't visit me, and they were surprised, and they said, when did we ever see you, when did we ever do this? And then he says the same thing, what you did or did not do to the least of these, you didn't do for me. I think there's people that they don't even know it, and they re represent Jesus well, but they just don't know Jesus yet. And so obviously I think the opposite is true, or true as well, that there are bad Christians. So bad means of poor quality or a low standard, having a wicked or evil character, or morally reprehensible. And then dictionary.com define Christian as a person who has received Christian baptism or is a believer in Christianity. And so this is where push comes to shove because I think we've actually misunderstood fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. In fact, years ago, when I first started at SunWest, Philly, Willie, who was the lead, Philly, uh, Willie, who was the lead pastor at the time, told me, don't use the word Christian. I said, why is that? He said, because people have a whole bunch of messed up ideas of what that means, messed up experiences for Christians. We at SunWest use the term Christ follower. And so if you ever heard the term Christ follower at SunWest, the reason we have used that historically is because there's a branding problem with the name Christian. But I think you could call it whatever you want. You call us Christ followers long enough, and eventually there's going to be a branding problem with that. And then we're going to have to change the name again. And so fundamentally, what are we talking about? Well, dictionary.com says it's, you know, people that profess a Christian faith or they believe a certain things. But that isn't what the word means. That's not where the word came from. The first use of the word is in Acts 11. It says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So a Christian actually wasn't used to describe going to church. A Christian wasn't used to describe those who got baptized, although they did. It doesn't describe those who believed all the things that their pastor told them. It doesn't describe those who got up early and studied their Bibles. It doesn't describe those who went to a SunWest group 
It doesn't describe those who listen to Shine FM. None of these things described Christian. You notice it doesn't say the disciples first called themselves Christians at Antioch. That's not what it says. It says the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The name Christian means little Christ. It means little Christ. And it wasn't a title that people took on themselves. It was a title that was given to them because they knew about Jesus, or maybe some of them had seen Jesus. They'd heard Jesus teach. They'd seen Jesus live. They heard about the type of person that he was. And then they watched this group of people, and they said, the way you live reminds me of what I knew about Jesus. So you are Christ-like. You are like Jesus. It means imitation. You imitate Jesus, and it's obvious. I, I can see it. Imitation. We understand imitation. If you have little kids, you understand imitation. You know, I told the story a few few months ago, but you know, I was driving, and my you know, my oldest son was starting to sit in the front seat, and there was a driver that cut us off, and he throws up his arms, he starts yelling at the window, and I was like, "What? Where, where'd you get that?" And then I realized it it was imitation, uh, because I find myself doing this, and I re- oh. I got little kids watching me, and often we don't notice what we're doing until it's, they start to mirror back to you, right? And so having kids is a, is, it's a looking in the mirror. It's honest. And so when people looked at these Christians, they said, you remind us of Jesus. The way that you're living actually reflects the way that we saw Jesus living. So Christian, being Christian was not about, you know, doctrines or beliefs or any of these things. It was about living in the way of Jesus, being a little Christ, and so the reality is that we all fall short of this, that we, even if you profess to be Christian, you profess to be a follower of Jesus, we don't do it perfectly. And every person who's ever professed to follow Jesus is a bad Christian in some degree. And so we're stuck. We realize there's a gap. And so what, we, what do we do? We create masks. And this has been going on since the very beginning when Adam and Eve were created to be God's icons into the world, his representatives, and they fell short. They didn't do it. And in Genesis, it says, Then the Lord called to the man, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. The first mask, the first hiding. Humanity's been doing this ever since. I remember when I was 15 years old, there was a, a tobacco inspector some of you know I had this job. Uh, one of the best jobs I've ever had. A tobacco inspector that came to my principal and said, hey, we're looking for a 15-year-old kid that looks the part of a troublemaker, but, you know, really deep down, he's a good kid. My principal says, I know just the kid. His name is Matt, His name's Matt Dick. If he, he, he would be perfect at this. You know, he, he looks like this. You know, he looks the part. Uh, but I think he's actually got a good heart down there somewhere. And, uh, and so I spent one summer when I was 15 years old driving around in a police car with a tobacco inspector. And so what we, we, we'd go to like all the little grocery stores and the co-ops and he'd park a block away and he'd give me a $5 bill. And he'd give me a $5 bill, I'd put it in the pocket and, you know, the thing at the time, cigarettes were, 
Uh, you know, I think there were seven something, another way more than that now. Uh, but he'd give me a $5 bill. Not enough to buy the cigarettes. And so I'd walk a block, walk into the grocery store, and I would, I would go up to the, the till, and I'd say to the person that was there, hey, could I get a pack of Players Light? That was the, I didn't know anything about cigarettes, but uh, that was the, the kind that, uh, my brand of choice, I guess. So uh, I'd say, could I get some Players Light? And they'd say, sure, that'll be seven fifty or whatever it was. And I said, oh, I only got a $5 bill. I said, oh, sorry. I was like, okay. And then I'd walk out, and then I'd report them, and I'd say to the tobacco inspector, they tried to sell me cigarettes, and he'd write them up. And then the third strike. So if I, if I were going into a grocery store, and they had one strike, they had two strikes previously, uh, and then we would go in for the third time, he would give me enough money to purchase the cigarettes because those cigarettes would be used against them in the court of law as evidence that they sold to an underage smoker. Um, so this is my 15-year-old job. Pretty great job, hey? And, and so I'll tell you what, though. There was a number of times, there was a number of times where I would, I would go into these grocery stores, and, um, and it was uncomfortable because m- most people didn't sell me cigarettes. And so I was... I was presented with a confrontation most times I went in. And I remember one time, for whatever reason, I picked the till where, like, the store manager was at. Um, and I said, could I get a pack of cigarettes? And he said, how old are you? And, and so part of, the, part of the whole thing is I can't lie. Right? I can't deceive. And so I got to be honest. Anytime they ask me a question, I got to be honest. And so I say, I'm 15 years old. He said, did you know you're underage to buy cigarettes? I said, yeah. And then he raises his voice. There's like a whole bunch of people in there. And he's like, he's like, what do you think you're doing? Coming into my store as an underage, ask me to buy cigarettes. And you think, and, and he starts like shouting in the store. And everything inside of me was wanted to say, this, you know, good, good job. You're, 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 uh, you're doing good. I'm undercover. We're on the same side. This isn't me. This isn't me. That's not who I am. And I think many of us, we, we have masks on. We, we present somebody else for lots of reasons. Somebody who we're not. And I think particularly in this age of social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, that there is this pressure to present and be uh, your image is supposed to be a certain way. And so we walk around presenting something else, somebody else, that is degrees different than maybe who we are actually. And what happens over time is we start to wonder, would, would somebody really, if they just knew me, would they like me? If they knew who I was beyond the posts and beyond the smiles and beyond the perfect image and beyond saying the things I'm supposed to say and presenting the person I'm supposed to present, if they knew my thoughts, my doubts, my insecurities, my ugliness, the things I do when nobody's looking, would would they accept me? This is not who I am. And why do we do it? Why do we wear masks? Well, I think there's lots of reasons we wear, wear, wear masks. But I think there's two primary reasons we want to talk about in this series, and I want to highlight this morning. If we sin, our automatic response is called guilt. And this is the story in Genesis, Adam. 
He didn't do what he knew that he, was, he, sh- he ought to do. And his response to that was to hide. So some of us have guilt. And the easiest way for us to deal with our guilt is to ignore it and to present, to put a mask on and present somebody else. The second reason we wear masks is because when somebody sins against us, it's called hurt. And we get hurt. And the easiest way to deal with hurt is just to put a mask on and pretend like I'm not hurt, like I'm not wounded. So whether you feel guilt or whether you feel hurt, the human reaction is the same, that we default to mask wearing. And we're going to unpack that in the coming weeks, but this is called, the Bible calls it hypocrites, which is where we get the word what? Hypocrite. And I know if you look at Matthew 23, you'll see that Jesus basically rings out the Pharisees for being hypocrites, and he says, you don't practice what you preach, and that's our common definition of hypocrites. They say something, they do something else, and that's true. That is hypocritical. But the true meaning of the word hypocrite is that of an actor, that of a mask wearer, that of someone playing a role that isn't truly them. And if that's our definition, then we could say that everybody is hypocritical in some way. Hypocrites aren't just those who practice what, don't practice what they preach, but they're people who wear masks, playing a part, pretending to be something other than they are. And because of that, God's got a marketing problem. So why doesn't he change his marketing plan? I mean, after thousands and thousands of years of hoping humans would image bear him, would be an icon, would represent him well, and it work, doesn't work over and over and over again, why doesn't he change his marketing plan? I want to dive into Luke chapter 6 this morning. This is a passage that really got my attention this past summer. And let me just read it and then I'll make a few comments on it. One day soon after where Jesus went up on the mountainside to pray. He prayed to God all night. At daybreak he called together all of his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. Here are their names. Simon, whom he named Peter. Andrew, Peter's brother. James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. Matthew, Thomas. James, son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. And I read this passage, and I, I was going over and over. Something, there was just something about it that was, I don't know. It, let, let, let me explain. So Jesus goes up to the mountainside to pray, and he prayed to God all night. So this is, this is a strategy meeting with God. This is like, God, we're going to have a marketing meeting, a PR meeting, a strategy meeting. You know, you want me to launch this revolution that's going to change the whole world. This is a big deal, and I'm beginning it, so let's meet. What do you want to do? What do, you know, what's, what's our approach going to be? What's our strategy going to be? And so he comes out of that evening of praying, and he comes to his disciples. So these were people that were already following Jesus. These were people that view Jesus as a rabbi, their life goal was to mimic him, to be like him, and so they were following him. They were going around, and they were behind him. And Jesus picks from this crowd of people that were following him. So the job interviews, so to speak, were already done. Jesus kind of knew who he had. And so he was selecting people out of his disciples for a particular job, to be an apostle, to be a sent one, to, to be the ones that he would send into the world as his representatives. 
These are the 12 guys that Jesus was going to start a revolution with. And so he goes and he picks them. And he picks Simon, who he named Peter. And this list of 12 disciples is in every one of the Gospels. But they're different in every Gospel. But there's two things that are the same. The first one is that every Gospel list of the 12 disciples starts with Peter. Because Peter was the man. And every one of the Gospels of the list ends with Judas. Judas was not the man. He was a bad Christian. Judas is the last name in every list. And so I was puzzled by this. Like Jesus spends the whole night praying with God, having, you know, coming up with a strategy for how they're going to revolutionize the world, and he picks these guys, and he picked Judas. Now, what do we know about Judas? If you were to read those passages there, you would kind of see the story of Judas in Scripture. I want to read to you in Matthew 26. Verse 20. This is Judas' story in a nutshell. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Are you talking about me? Jesus replied, no, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, you have said it so. You, you have said so. Jesus, or Judas, throughout Scripture, is always referred to as the betrayer, as the traitor. In John 13, 21, in the same incident, it said Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Jesus was troubled. He was heartbroken. Very, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And it describes Jesus' turmoil in John about saying that because Jesus was betrayed by his close friend. Jesus had Judas happen to him. What happens when bad Christians happen to Jesus? Judas is a traitor. And you know, to be honest, my my heart goes out to Judas. Every time I read scripture, my heart breaks for him. Because I'm not sure I'm that much different than Judas. We'll come back to that in a second. And then we have Peter. And when we think of Peter, we think of the guy who walked on water. Right? You guys think of that? Or you think when Jesus named him rock, you are the rock, which is what Peter means. Simon, you're going to be called Peter. You're going to be the rock in which I will build my church. We don't usually think of Peter as the one who betrayed Jesus. But get this, in the same passage in Matthew 26, right after Jesus tells Judas that he's going to betray him, and all the disciples are like, surely not me, Lord, surely not me. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you are going to deny me. You are going to betray me. Peter says, no, there's no way I would ever do that. I, 
Jesus, I'm, I'm the man. I'm, I'm the rock. I'm, I'm your guy. You know, you're going to build the church on me. You remember that whole thing? Like, there's no way that I would betray you. And if you read through the passages here listed under Peter, you will realize that Peter and Judas are not a whole lot different. These are not the heroic stories of Peter that we have. These are the stories of betrayal, of denial. There's a thin line between Judas and Peter. They both wore masks. They were both traitors in some form. They both professed more than they were able to live. They were both hypocritical. In Matthew 26, the same passage where Judas betrays Jesus, let me read starting in verse 69. Check this out. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. So Jesus was being taken. He was captured. He was on his way to the cross. You were with him, weren't, weren't you? But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you are one of them. You, your accent gives you away. I'm curious what that accent means. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore at them. He swore to them. He didn't swear at them. He swore to them. I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And in that moment, Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then he went outside and wept bitterly. Luke recounts, in, the, in Luke's gospel, he recounts the story too. And this is what it says at the end of the story. When Jesus, in the third denial, Peter says, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. I can picture Jesus being captured in the distance. And the third time, Jesus denies him. And then they, they catch each other's eyes. You know that feeling? I remember one time as a kid, I thought it was a great idea to throw knives into my basement wall. I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle. I grabbed knives, and I just stood in the basement wall for like three hours. Like, this is amazing. And I remember when I was in bed that night, my dad comes in. And he looks me in the eye. He says, what did you do in the basement this morning? And right then my gut, or my heart went right to my gut and I knew I was in trouble. You know, we, we know that feeling when we get caught. When we profess to be something. When we, when we think, hey, you know, I'm this person. And then there's a gap between what we profess and how we live. And then somebody looks us straight in the eyes or sees us for who we really are. And our heart goes to our gut. It says that Peter went and wept bitterly. And if you go back to the story of Judas, the story continues in Matthew 27. And the crucifixion was about to happen. Judas started to feel bad. He started to realize, I didn't live up to who I said that I was. And it says, when Judas, who had betrayed him, this is Matthew 27, saw that Jesus was condemned. Right, so Judas looks at Jesus. 
You know, notice the difference. Peter looks at Jesus, and then Judas looks at Jesus. He saw that he was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief, chief priests and elders. He said, I have sinned. He said, for I have betrayed innocent bl- blood. What is this to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Jesus threw the money in the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. Let me go back to Luke 6, 10. Jesus has a marketing meeting with God. God, how are we going to start this revolution? Who do you want me to pick? And he picks these 12 guys, Peter at the front of the list, and Judas at the back of the list. And I realized as I was thinking about this passage that we don't get the stories of Jesus without the story, or the stories of Peter without the story of Judas. Jesus created an environment for people to come, to try to follow him, knowing that they were going to fail. Jesus created an environment where both Judas and Peter could happen. You know, we remember Peter for all the good things and Judas for all the bad things, but the only difference between Judas and Peter was how the story ended. And so I think if we were to rid the world in some way of all the bad Christians, you know, we might be gone with them. But the, rea- the reality is all of the heroic Christians were given the opportunity in the same way that Peter was to turn around, to repent, to come face to face with Jesus. And so this was God's plan. It's been God's plan since the, be- since the beginning that people would be his representatives, his icons in the world. And with that came risk. And Jesus and the Father partnered together to create an environment of risk. Knowing that, Jesus, you're going to be misrepresented. So why doesn't God change his marketing plan? And, and the, the reality is, the truth is that he did. 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus. And in Colossians 1, 15 and 19, it said, Christ is the image of the invisible God for Christ. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. So for the entire biblical narrative, you see God choosing a person or a people or a group of people to represent themselves. They fail over and over and over and over again. And then Jesus sends his son Jesus, or God sends his son Jesus, the perfect representation it says in Hebrews 1.3, the Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. God sends Jesus to show us what God is really like. And Jesus, fully God, fully man. So, God, so Jesus shows us what God is truly like, and Jesus also shows us what true humanity is really like. And so in Jesus, we see no misrepresentation of God or of what it means to be human. And then so we follow Jesus, the, image, the perfect image of God which we have, and then we fall short. And that's, that's our story. That's my story. That's your story. That's anybody who's professed to be a Christian. That's their story. Sometimes we misrepresent Jesus. And sometimes God has been misrepresented to you. Some of you come in here this morning with many wounds, with many hurts because of certain experiences that you've had. And the reality is that only Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
Anybody who professes to follow him, their job description was basically to point to Jesus. And any times we fall short, it actually gives an opportunity to point to Jesus in a different way, but it takes humility and it takes repentance. So here, the story ends. Peter's story ends differently. Judas goes and hangs himself because he can't deal with his own hypocrisy. Peter sees eyes to eye with Jesus, and there's this account. It says, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Lord, you have to, why do you have to ask me three times? Well, partly because Peter denied Jesus three times. Right? Jesus trying to fully reinstate Peter. And there's something that's happening here in the Greek language that I just want to draw out for you. And I've read a bunch of commentaries on this, and I've read different scholars. And most of the commentaries, I say, they say, don't read into this. There's actually nothing there. And I just can't help but feel like there's something there. So take this with a grain of salt. But it's interesting because Jesus said, there's two words for love happening in this passage. Jesus says, Simon Peter, do you love me? And he's using the word agape, which is like this, this godly love, this, this unquitting love, this love that uh, it's covenantal through thick and thin. It's strong. It's unbreakable. And Peter responds with saying, I phileo you, which, which, is, a, which is a friendly love, which is an imperfect love. And this is what happens in the conversation. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter responds to God and says, I phileo you. And then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, I phileo you. I mean, I don't know how Peter could profess to love Jesus more than that after he just did what he did. He knew that he didn't have agape love in his heart. And then here's where the miracle happens in this encounter, that Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you phileo me? And Peter says, you know I phileo you. And whether or not I'm off or I'm on, the, I think the reality is that th th this is seen in the biblical story that Jesus has this standard. And we're called to live up to the standard. And we fail over and over and over again. And those who... Those of us who are honest, like Peter, say, God, this is, I'm trying, but this is where I'm at. And Jesus meets us where we're at. This is the incarnation where God comes from heaven to earth. He meets us where we're at and he said, okay, let's start there. Transformation starts there. Transformation starts with being honest. Grace starts where we admit where we've fallen short. So maybe some of you Feel like Jesus. But I mean that in the betrayal sense. Maybe some of you know what it's experienced to have Judas's and Peter's in your life that have betrayed you, that said they were with you, that were, when push came to shove, they weren't. They hurt you. They said things that were mean. They turned their backs on you. You... You were looking for something from them that they couldn't deliver on you. You know what Jesus' response to Peter and Judas was, and I think we see it on the cross, we saw it in Jesus' encounter with Peter, is that, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. 
And so this, in this series, I hope if you're someone who has been hurt by a Christian, someone who professed to be like Jesus and they fell short and you were hurt in that gap, you actually have an opportunity to be like Christ and move towards forgiveness. And I think it's there that there's transformation. Maybe some of you relate to Judas and Peter. You've been hurt. You've messed up. You've misrepresented God to others. I had a coffee a few weeks ago with a, with a, with a friend, uh, a youth that I discipled at SunWest for a long time. And they'd been gone from SunWest for a long time. And they came back and, um, and we talked. And I was like, you know, what's going, you know, what's going on? What's your story? And I learned in that conversation that um, you know, just under a decade ago that or half a decade ago uh, that I overpromised and underdelivered. That I, I said that I would be something and do something for him that I never did. And I was an authority in his life that, you know, was inviting him to follow me as I followed Christ and I fell short and that ended up hurting and wounding him. And I can't tell you as a pastor how many times that story happens. And I have an opportunity in those moments to be defensive, to put my mask on and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Or I have an opportunity to take my mask down. To look them in the eye, to look God in the eye and to be honest and say, you know what, I dropped the ball. I hurt you. I own that. That misrepresented Jesus. But don't paint your picture of Jesus based on me. Paint it based on who he is. My, my, my whole point was to point young people to Jesus. My whole point as a pastor is to point people to Jesus and sometimes I get in the way and that's just the reality. The difference between Judas and Peter, I hope you see it, is that Peter looked Jesus in the eye, repented, received grace, and through that transformation became one of the heroes of the faith. One of the saddest parts about the story of Judas to me is that passage I read in Matthew 27 where he sees what's happening to Jesus, he feels remorse, and then he goes and hangs himself. And I'm like, Judas, like three days too early. Like, what, what would happen if Judas would have hung on for another few days? Whether he would have realized that his betrayal of Jesus wasn't the end of the story, that there was resurrection after the crucifixion. What if he would have had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus after the resurrection? What would that conversation have looked like? That was the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas wasn't willing to look Jesus in the face, wasn't willing to let Jesus finish the work that he had started. So my hope in this series, I'm going to invite you to to stand with me as we close and enter into the last song. When I, as a pastor, talk to people about why they don't go to church, Most of the time, their story is about how a Christian hurt them. How God was misrepresented to them. Often by a person in authority. Maybe by a friend. And I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I just, I want to repent and apologize on behalf of anybody who claimed to be a Christian, a representative of Christ 
and they fell short and they didn't own it. They didn't acknowledge that they felt short. That's on them and it's not on Jesus. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for as a pastor where I've done that to you. But Jesus invites us to look beyond the people in front of us and to see him on the cross and recognize that he is the true representation of God. And can we learn to fill that gap between our hurt with forgiveness and grace? And with your eyes closed, some of you are wearing masks and you're, you, know, you know this game, you know what's expected of you, but you feel like you're living a double life. And there's two pathways in front of you. One, one is the pathway of Judas, the other is the pathway of Peter. To run and isolate yourself because you can't live this duplicit life anymore or to own it, to recognize the gap, to look Jesus in the face and recognize that there's enough love, grace there to reinstate you so that you don't have to fake it you can be who he made you to be. And so, Father, we, we are, as Christians, Lord, we are sorry for how we misrepresent you. And, Lord, I thank you that in that place of honesty, there's also grace and forgiveness. We thank you, like Peter, that we can come to you and say, Lord, this is all I've got. And you come to our level and say, let's start there. So wherever you're at, Jesus is saying to you, let's start there. Let's start wherever you're at, wherever that is. But just be honest. And Lord, for those who have been hurt, they've been disappointed. There's been expectations that haven't been met. There's been abuses of all sorts. Lord, where they put trust into somebody that broke their trust. Lord, I pray that you would paint in their heart a bigger picture of who you are than what they've experienced through those that confessed or pro professed to be representing you. Lord, would you fill our hearts with forgiveness and repentance so that we can move forward and be the icons, the representatives that you called us to be. In Jesus' name. Jesus, you make all things new. Whether you've been hurt or wounded or disappointed, Jesus' death and resurrection is for you. That he's in the business of taking hurt and recycling it. Recycling into something beautiful, into something good, and something uh, that you can use for a purpose. Maybe you realize that you're falling short. Welcome to the club. The mistake that you will make is pretending that you're not falling short and just keep putting up the face, keep putting up the mask, keep pretending that it's okay. And as long as you do that, you are preventing yourself from walking into a transformative relationship with God and with others. And this series, I promise you, will take courage no matter what side of the spectrum you're on. It will take courage to move beyond hurt and pain because it's what we know and it's actually comfortable. But I invite you, would you risk-take with Jesus? Would you risk-take with him and experience 
grace and forgiveness and dare to believe that you don't have to be stuck where you are? Would you risk take with Jesus when when you're on that hamster wheel and you feel like you're not getting ahead? Would you risk and trust him again knowing that he has the power to move you forward so that you don't have to keep faking it? Jesus, we thank you for your death and resurrection. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that you freely give to us to empower us not only to forgive, but also to lead lead lives and to live a life that is more and more increasingly Christ-like. Lord, when we fall short, I pray that we would be quick to recognize it and point people to you. To appoint people to you. Amen.